Welcome everybody to Dead Talk Live, and today we have, let's see, writer, director, producer, actor, Matt Shaw. You are a man of many hats. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing very well. Thanks for inviting me here to have a chat. Exactly. It is our pleasure uh, to have you here with us all the way from the UK. And I got to tell you, we have a lot of viewers in the UK, and they always ask, when I have uh, guests from the United Kingdom, where in the United Kingdom are you from? So let's just get that out of the way. Where in the UK are you from? I'm from the good part. Okay. I'm from uh, down south. So, you know, the, the warmer part of ah, the UK. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So there you go, UK fans. You have it. Southern UK. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, you know, you like I said, you've written, directed, produced, you're also an actor. What would you say was one or more than one of those things that got you really interested into this in uh, industry? Uh, you know, none of them. <laughs> Basically, uh, I, I guess it was acting, although I haven't really done much acting, funny enough. But when I was younger in primary school, you know, so our first school aged about 10 years old my mm -hmm. teacher said what do I want to do when I'm older and I said I wanted to act and direct now at that time at school I'd only done a couple of um, school stage shows and every one I got my lines wrong so my teacher when I told her she just rolled my uh, rolled her eyes at me and just went Poof. and I'll never forget that and I, I really hope she's still alive so I can track her down and just go, look, look what I'm doing now. Exactly. That is the best revenge. Look it's, at it's, me now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now you've seen a lot of your work published. Uh, what was the moment as a writer that you felt you came onto this, the scene that you, you made it, you know, for lack of a better term? Yeah. Well, I've been writing since, well, I've been writing since I was 12. Um, but I was writing and publishing books um, for about 10 years before I released one book. Um, and that was called Sick Bastards. And I released it just to upset a publisher who said I was sick in the head. And uh, I thought, if you want sick, I'll give you sick. And I write this thing. It started <coughs> a graphic sex scene. The door opens, an old woman comes in, you know, for God's sake, put your sister down, dinner's on the table. And dinner on the table is just this guy strapped to a table and they're carving him up while he's alive. And I released it thinking I was going to get a massive backlash, but I didn't care. Uh -huh. I just, I enjoyed the story. And it went to number one on Amazon overnight. And okay. I sold the film rights to it. And I was like, Okay, so this is the kind of content that people want then, you know, yeah. extreme horror. And it was soon after that, in fact, I thought, what, I'm going to get some, um, some young lads are going to read my stuff and they're going to love it. And I've got more, more female readers than male readers. And I was like, well, I'm writing some disgusting stuff. <laughs> I just don't get it. And all these people are lovely when you talk to them, but you think... How does this work? How is it the nasty stuff attracts more people than the nice stuff? Yeah, yeah, and especially in these times that we're living in today, with all the horrors in the real world, uh, people are retreating more and more to the more graphic, horrible stuff. Is it because 
they feel comforted by something darker than the real world that we're living in? I mean, what do you think? I have got no idea. I mean, I, I'd like to think that my stuff is darker than the real world. But in all honesty, I don't think it is. No. no because when I'm writing my horror, it's all very um, tongue-in-cheek. You know, it's disgusting stuff, but there's always like an under underlying little bit of humor there. Yeah. And obviously with the real world, you know, you get young young kids just get abducted and murdered. I mean, recently here in the UK, we had a, a teenager that was lured by some other kids into a field. And when he got there, the other kids stabbed him to death. Oh my God. And, you know, I don't think there's anything I can write that would be nastier than that. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I always tell my viewers too that the any fiction you see on the screen pales in comparison to what anyone can create, uh, what the real world puts around us every day. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, sorry, there's one film that I watched which is, has come close to it and it freaked me out. And I don't know whether you've seen it, but um, Eden Lake, have you ever watched that? Mm -mm. No. Um, without spoiling anything, uh, it's basically... Uh, do you know what a chav is in America? Yes. Yeah, it's basically... Uh, guy and a woman yeah. go to the woods to have a, a camp out and there's a group of chavs there that decide to torment them and honestly it's one of the most disturbing films because you know it could actually happen yeah um and that that's quite freaky exactly and that's why i think like uh sub like the paranormal stuff that is uh could really happen it scares the shit out of people even more and it attracts them more to go watch it uh yeah. Now, when it comes to writing, do you consider yourself more of a novelist or a screenplay writer? Oh, I'm, uh, I call myself a storyteller. Uh, I actually prefer writing screenplays, but I made my living writing books. So I write uh, novellas mainly, mm -hmm. uh, smaller than a novel. Um, but I've published over, uh, over 300 of them now. Yeah, yeah. Uh I mean, like novelist George R.R. R. Martin said, there's typically two types of writers, gardeners who plant seeds and let the stories grow, and architects who plan every little aspect. Now, between screenwriting and novels, uh, which categories do you fall in for the different various projects that you have done? Um, I'm probably one of those guys that just gets a load of seeds, throws them, hopes for the best and runs to the next project <laughs> you know, and don't look back yeah I, well I, I never look back at my other work you know because it, I, I'm very aware that my earlier work isn't going to be as polished as the stuff I'm doing now yeah it's like now I'm starting to take you know ideas from uh, from George and from Stephen King where although I'm writing novellas I'm trying to tie them into a greater universe that features all of my work so if you come along as a reader, you don't have to have read my other stuff. Yeah. But if you have, you'll recognize little nods towards my other stories. Gotcha. Gotcha. But now, really, yeah, really with books, I just write them and then just move on to the next one. <laughs> one of the most uh, creative writers that I have ever had the pleasure of listening to uh, speak at a convention has been Clive Barker. 
I don't know mm. if you're a fan of Clive Barker, but I've mentioned this many times on the show. Here is this very nice mannered, you know, person. But when you hear him speak, when you hear him talk about his creative process, it is the most sick, sadistic, uh, beautiful creative mind you could possibly imagine, you know, and how he came up with Hellraiser and all his other works. And uh, it's amazing, you know, what lies in the minds of people and what they can create. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally uh, not a fan of, of Clive Barker's work, but I can appreciate it. And, mm -hmm. you know, the guy in the, this is meant with the utmost respect, he is one sick son of a bitch. Yes, exactly. Um, but I, I, I absolutely adore his artwork that he does. And I would, I'd love to own some of it. But I mean, mm -hmm. when that sells, it sells for more than I can afford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for you, what is the hardest uh, aspect of turning a book into uh, a screenplay? Um, because I make the films myself, it's going to be the budget restrictions. Um, so I, I've got, all, I say, I've got over three hundred stories. Um, and some of them I know for a fact would make fantastic films. And I'm not just saying that. Um, but I can't turn it into a screenplay because I know I can't afford to then go and film it. And I could cut corners with it to make it affordable to film. But then I feel like I'm cheating my readers by releasing that. I, I totally get it. Is it because uh, those cutting corners, do you mean... You know, a book obviously contains a hell of a lot of information. It could be uh, pages and pages just to describe a scene. When you say cutting corners, what aspect do you think would take away from the integrity of the film? Uh, the violence, uh, basically the effects. Um, you know, if I write in a book that... Uh, well, put it this way. Uh, we've just filmed um, March, just gone, a film called The Call. Mm-hmm. And I actually wrote that as a screenplay first. And then because I normally write books first and then adapt it, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and adapt it the other way around. And at the end of the call, when we are basically torturing this, this poor woman, um, the book is really, really graphic. And now we've, we're in post-production for the film. We're editing it all together. I'm like, you know what? I want to include these scenes from the book. But it means filming stuff, which is going to be very costly to film. Yeah. And there's ways around it where I can just cheat shots and things like that. But because of what we want to film, because it's quite sexually aggressive and explicit, it's just going to be really hard to to find someone willing to do it for us. <laughs> Um, it, all, it always comes down to money and getting the right money to make sure you don't cheat the project and you put out something that, you know, putting the audience aside that you're happy with. You know, that's the bottom line. Weirdly, I'm not happy with anything I've ever made. Um, uh, you're a perfectionist. It's, it's just, I've got so many, uh, I'll say, it, I've got so many great ideas in my head and translating them from my head to the screen because of a lack of budget is incredibly difficult and you know we filmed box at the start of the year and it's it's coming out soon 
I think it was like the fifth time I was watching it. I was like, you know what would have been better is if we did this, this and this. And the guy that filmed it with me and who also edited it, he was like, yeah, that would have been much better. But we can't go back and redo it now. It's, It's finished. So you're just like, oh, crap. And it seems to be an ongoing thing with my films. I finish them and then I'm like, I wish we had done. Well, like with the call, you know, yeah. there's more I want to do. So we are actually setting aside a weekend at the Octo- uh, at the end of October to actually film these scenes. Good, good. Uh, so fingers crossed that might be a film I'm happy with. <laughs> now, I always hear uh, with people from the United Kingdom, you know, you brought up financing, how hard it is over there to get financing to do movies. Is that your perspective as well? Yeah, well, I've I've kind of come uh, into the industry kind of cheating, as it were, where I haven't actually approached anyone, you know, any film production companies for money. I've crowdfunded everything I've ever done. That seems to be the new thing. Well, the, the reason I do it is because take Box, for example, it's basically me in a box for an hour and a half. You know, so I, I'm on death row. I have the injection. I wake up in a box. Mm-hmm. You're like, Why is he in there? Bloody blah. Now, we could shoot that for not a lot of money because we own the film equipment. And all of us work on these films for free yeah. because we think, you know what, if it makes money later, we'll, we'll, we'll take a cut. Mm-hmm. And... So, yeah, by working for free and working on smaller projects, it's it's easier to crowdfund the money. You know, so we made Box. It ended up costing, um, what, about $5,000 to wow. make it. That's, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, same with The Call. Uh, the Call cost, um, I think that's around about the same. The next film is more expensive. Um, but that's also because I, I purposely write small-scale scripts, you know, so one location. And, do you, and when it comes to distribution, have you been lucky enough to get, I mean, distribution pretty easily or was it a real challenge? Uh, because I was new to the film industry, I, I shot a film called Monster um, back in 2018. And we had this guy that was selling it for us and it didn't end brilliantly. And we both had to sign to say we won't mention names or discuss what happened. Um, so because that had dragged on for so long, I decided just to release a film myself through Amazon. Exactly. A lot of people don't know that anybody can release something through Amazon. Yeah. You, you have to, um, make it so it it goes past their quality checks, Mm -hmm. but you're a passionate filmmaker. That shouldn't be an issue for you anyway. No. Um, so we did that. We were lucky enough to get the money back for monster, um, you know, for the actual film, and then when was the second film out? We shot another film, an anthology horror film called Next Door. There you are. We're going to get to that in a minute here, too. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and we just, re- we just released that the same way because we thought it worked for Monster. It will work for this. It didn't. Uh, we made a loss on that one. And then we did a, a stupid film straight out of lockdown. They came from the sky. I saw them. It was only ever meant to be a joke, but it ended up being so fun to watch that we thought we'd release it, but we wouldn't try and get distribution for it. Oh, okay. Uh, So the first film we actually looked at getting distribution for was Box. 
and we were just getting turned down left, right, and centre. The one company that turned around and said yes to us, we looked a bit more into who the company was, and we just weren't comfortable signing away with them. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. And since looking further into that company and and someone we know having first-hand experience with them, we made the right decision because we would have been screwed over. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of shady characters out there. So next door, uh, it appears that you don't, you're not very proud of it. I don't, you know, I think it was, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it was released in 2020 during the, the lockdown uh, on Amazon, right? Uh, now, releasing it during the lockdown uh, obviously you're not happy with the results that the movie produced. Looking back, what, what would you attribute to it not being that successful? Uh, basically, Amazon, because of lockdown and COVID, Amazon started working with less staff. So we actually tried to release Next Door the moment we were locked down. But it got delayed until the week before we came out of lockdown. Okay. So then as soon as we were out of lockdown, people, they didn't want to watch a film anymore. And there was this guy that backed the film um, through Kickstarter. He messaged me and he said, hey, Matt, I've just watched Next Door. I love what you do. The film was fantastic. Blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, can you make it so I can leave a review on IMDb? So I was like, oh, thanks very much. Glad you liked it. And, you know, uh, we'll get to why I wasn't a fan of it in a minute um, or wasn't initially a fan of it. So I unlocked it on IMDb, said it was released. And this guy gave me a one star review and said it was the biggest piece of shit he's ever watched. Now, why would somebody do that? And then I, I went back to him and just with laughing emojis and on my Patreon page, I destroyed him because it's locked down to my fans, you know, so it's not in the public forum. I didn't realize the prick was part of my Patreon page. Oh. And the next thing I know, over the next few days, before the film's on Amazon, I suddenly had loads of one-star reviews, all of them linked to this one account. So I was like, right, okay, well, there's a lesson for me there. Yeah. Um, but I, I just want to say I did watch Next Door in March again and I enjoyed it a lot more this time because I've had time away from it but you know when we were filming it it was just a comedy of errors I mean did you actually watch it all yeah you know the black and white segment which goes into a silent movie yes subtitles that wasn't supposed to be in it at all but when we came to film the traffic was so bad and so noisy and the sunlight was glaring so much off the camera that I was like, right, what if we make it black and white? And the cameraman was like, that'll work. It's like, what if we make it 1920s, speed the footage up, add crackles, do the dialogue. I'll rewrite the dialogue as one card bits. And he was like, yeah, that'll work. And that happened so much during the film because, you know, I'm in that film as well in yes. two scenes. I was supposed to be in one scene. But the actor who was doing a scene where he basically gets a hand job off uh, Laura Ellen Wilson's character, he he messaged me seven o'clock the day of the shoot to say he wasn't coming. So at seven o'clock, 
I'm downstairs where we're shooting it with um, a film director called Peter McKiernan. And we're rewriting his scene to make it tie into my character so we can make it one extended scene. Yeah. And it was just things like that through the whole shoot. Just, by the end of it, it's like, I want to die. It's like one folly after another. But you did it. You finished it. It is out there for people. The uh, next door is available on Amazon Prime. I like it. Just, it. It's weird. It's I like it now that I've had time away from it because it wasn't the film we set out to make. But now I look at it, I think, you know what? It's actually pretty original, whether mm -hmm. you like it or not. It's different. And that's kind of what I want to do with my films. I want to make something different every time. Yeah. Now, to give you an example, in one of the opening sequences, we see a character going through a rapid change of emotions and in rapid succession. Uh, was there any challenges to in writing that and getting it your vision onto the screen of that particular sequence? Can you remind me what the sequence was about? The guy was just going through the whole, like, you know just anger uh rage and then flipping back to calmness and uh, i forget the character's name but he's just going through this rapid succession of emotions like boom 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 uh i can't remember the scene do you know what he was doing in it oh god uh for me just that part of him going in and out of the of this rage back to calmness is what sticks out to me what he was doing I don't remember, but let's just use it as an overall general question. When you're writing something like that in a character who is going through a wide range of emotions in a pretty short period of time, uh, and you're putting it on paper, do you ever ask yourself, okay, how am I going to show this on the screen? Uh, not really, because I, I find it kind of easy to, I'm that, that's me, that is my character, right? You know, one minute I'll be happy. The next minute I want to kill you. Um, the next minute I'll be laughing about that. So I go through a lot of emotions on a daily basis um, up until the point where I break and then I just shut everything down for a little while and then I restart. So to get that on, on camera, I, I, we literally just set the camera up. I tell the actor what I need to do. And if we need to stop and then go from a different angle to give him time to, to come away, and go into it but but mainly it's down to how something's written yeah. if something's written realistically like there's a scene in there that from a guy who's talking to someone who who killed his daughter and you know there would be a lot of emotion there you know you hate this person but at the same time you're thinking about your daughter who you miss and you know, you're listening to this person say sorry and you're battling with that emotion. That, if, if the writing's on point, then an actor really shouldn't struggle to convey all of those emotions. Okay, gotcha. So you, I mean, when you're directing, uh, are you the kind of the director that really just tells, you know, how you have a discussion with the actor and then let them do their thing? or you're really hands-on with your actors step-by-step uh, step on what you want them to do? No, I, um, I try and lead them to it. So if I've got a certain idea for something and I want it, I'm happy to keep doing those takes until I get it. But 
as a director, I think it's important to be able to let the actor have room to breathe. Yeah. Because there's a chance that they're going to bring something to the table that you didn't think about. And that's happened to me quite a lot. Um, you know, when I was casting for the film we're doing next year, uh, I asked, uh, funny enough, Laura Ellen Wilson again to to audition for me and I didn't give her any pointers. I just gave her this monologue which showed different levels of emotion. And then she just went ahead and did it. Now yeah. I know because she did it so well that I can leave her because the script says the emotion that's needed. Yeah. It doesn't go into too much detail, but it says, you know, angry, sad. Then just let the actor do their thing. Then when they're working, if they nail it, but you still get another idea, then you have a quick chat with them and just say, I like that, can we try this? Gotcha. gotcha. Um, but, you know, I just think everyone should be a given room to, to do their thing. Now, uh, with Next Door, we are introduced to these characters and we're not really given a lot of background on them. Uh, what was your thought process in developing them? Did you want to leave the background to these different characters up to the viewer's interpretation? Yeah, because I think next door, um, you know, just for the, the listeners, I mean, it's a it's an anthology. So basically it's uh, loads and loads of little films. Some of them are a couple of minutes long. And I wanted to tell the story in the present. Now, by the time you start worrying about what that character is in the past, you're kind of killing time. Yeah. You know, you're wasting time you don't have. I want to tell this story. And by concentrating on the present, it means that you can throw a twist in there that the audience won't see coming. Yeah. Because they don't realize that that's the character they've been watching. Gotcha. Now, I think one of the reasons why I like Next Door were the performances. I thought the performances by the actors were really spot on were you happy with the performances they gave you for the most part yeah i mean um i mean for one a lot of the actors uh in that film are actually off british television series um so you know some of them aren't doing anything at the moment but you know i grew up watching some of those actors so next thing because i actually filmed it in my old house <laughs> so i've got um like Jamie Lomaz, he's in a, a TV program called Hollyoaks over here, which is pretty big. And I'm sitting there one day just thinking, you know, Jamie Lomaz is sitting in my living room having his makeup done. I was like, life has got suddenly very peculiar for me. And, you know, when you go to the shops just to get some lunch and you've got someone from another TV soap and as you're walking past, you know, members of the public are like, oh, can we get a picture with them? And, you know, um, so I expected the acting to be good for that. It was and good then, casting. Uh, I, I think it definitely added to the appeal of the movie. Yeah, I mean, we, we thought it would help when it came to selling the movie. Um, you know, because if we had names that people know, uh, companies in England would be more likely to take the film on because they'll be like, oh, fans of Jamie Lomas will watch that, fans of such and such. But I also learned that working with some of the actors who are from television is also a ball ache. Because there was one person, um, and because I've mentioned him, I just want to say now it was not Jamie Lomas. <laughs> um, but there was one person, I tried giving directing notes to them, 
and they just nodded like yeah 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 shut their eyes and leaned back in their chair while i'm talking to them oh god there was another one who um made such racist and homophobic remarks on set that my makeup artist never came back to set and when they got to the end of what they considered to be their day they were like well yeah well my train's in a couple of hours who's going to give me a lift to the train station so you had a lot of egos to deal with only two only two egos okay and the rest of the people were absolutely lovely and you know i've worked with any of them again um even the ones that gave me a hard time because i've you know next door was my second feature film yeah i've grown a lot from everything i've experienced in the film industry and, and the people i've worked with i am better prepared to deal with people like that gotcha now uh you see in this movie next door you bring a lot of characters from your prior shorts uh and novels what is it about these characters that you like that you keep bringing them back in different uh, movies well, when I was writing it, because I, you're referring to, uh, basically, I, I wrote a series of books called Fucked Up Shorts. Mm -hmm. And because they're short stories, I thought, you know what, this would translate well to a short film. So I was like, if, you know, if I'm honest, it's laziness. Not wanting to create a new character. Yeah, I mean, some of the characters in Next Door I've never written about before, like the guy that wears the pig mask. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never written about him before. Uh, the guy that uh, is writing a letter because he's going to kill himself, I've never written about him before. But like the the escort who kills people, um, the, the there's a story about a baby in there, which at the film premiere of Monster, a young lady called Chloe who was training to be a midwife she told me this story about what happened in a you know when the lady gave birth and I was like that is that's awful I have to make that into a film and I did um but yeah so it's laziness if if they appear in a book it's because I just know it would translate well to screen now next door being your second feature film uh did you feel you gained a lot of experience with your first feature film that you carried over and then made next door a lot easier to direct and shoot uh it made mm, next door was easier to shoot because it we spent i think about a year and a half making next door wow because wow. you know we were just shooting these short films all over the place and then when we figured we had enough, I sat down and, and rewrote the script to make them all go together in one cohesive story. Mm -hmm. So literally it was like, we've got a short film, let's make that. We've got another short film, let's make that. With Monster, the first film, we didn't do shot lists. We did nothing. So I literally showed up on the day and I was like, I want this, I want that, and I want that. Which is a, a god-awful way of working. Yeah. the sound guy needs to know where he's going to stand the camera guy needs to know where to set up so we learned with next door to storyboard do the shot lists and just then we learned loads of different forms that we've designed mm -hmm. so when we're filming it we can just do tick sheets to know that we've got everything we need before we move on no. so yeah we learned a lot yeah it's a uh, you know it's experience 
Now, Next Door does carry some comedic uh, elements. Uh, is that, you know, just listening to you talk, that doesn't seem to be something that you would normally write about. What made you put in some lighthearted moments in Next Door? Uh, you know, some would say comedic elements. Yeah, I mean, I think the comedy comes from the fact that it is still very dark humor. So it's still kind of like a horror world. But I think if you were going to make an anthology film, and God knows I've seen this enough, um, churned out on Netflix at the moment, if it's all just horror, it gets really boring. You know, you need something to break it up, to mm -hmm. give the audience room to breathe and and sit back, have a laugh at something, and then throw something horrible at them again and start the process all over. I think if it's just horror, 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 I think the audience gets bored and they come to expect it. And I'd rather keep them on their toes. Now, the lighthearted moments, is that something you throw in as a director with directly with the characters and what they do or say, or is it the, the, the location, the setting? How is it, how do you approach bringing the lighter moments onto the screen? Is it just strictly through character or just visual elements? It varies from film to film. I mean, normally it's done through character. But when we did, um, they came from the sky I saw them, which is kind of um, my love letter to Monty Python and the Naked Gun films. There was going to be a scene where the two characters are having a phone call and they've got tin cans with string uh, because it's that kind of weirdness. Yeah. And we built the sets so they're in different parts of the set. And I was looking at it on the um, screen when we're filming it and the guy's arm kind of blended into the background of the shot. So I thought, you know what would be funny is if we just got masking tape, so black masking tape, put it down the center of the set, taped the guy and the girl's arm into that, so the line went over both of them. So when you're watching it at first glance, it looks like a split screen. But then you realize, well, no, it's just, it's just taped. Yeah. And I, that is a very stupid example of comedy. But that was why it just came on the day because of how it looked. So, yeah, it varies. Now, you're, it would be a fair statement to say that your passion is deep within the horror genre. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like horror and I like comedy. Um, that doesn't mean I, I, I don't look at other genres because, mm -hmm. you know, in my writing world, I've done science fiction, I've done uh, erotica. Uh, I've done sad stories, you know, tear jerkers, um, but I tend to have more fun with the horror genre and the community that comes along with it. Because although they're reading horrible stuff, these people, they're batshit crazy in a fun way, you know? They're passionate, they're just, yeah. Yeah, and they're fun to talk to. But you also know if you're having a proper conversation with them, nine times out of ten, they're perfectly sane. But when you get them excited about horror, then you can just, yeah, it's just great fun. It is a lot of fun. And, you know, I hate when I read articles and these writers write horror, the most underappreciated genre. I think, yeah, maybe going back 20, 30 years, that might be true. But horror is one of the top genres and most watched genres in today's world. 
So yeah. I think the people, uh, the writers, the media behind the horror industry, they like to hold on to that claim that we're so underappreciated. And the only way, the only place that I would agree with that is when it comes to awards. Horror does not get the respect and recognition when it comes to award seasons. No, but, definitely not. Yeah, uh, but when it comes to fans, it's, in my opinion, the top or one of the top genres out there today. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I went to, uh, I do a lot of book signings at Comic Con, um, you know, because I'm a geek. And, uh, well, I'm going I'd, to Comic Con, the New York Comic Con, in just two weeks. See, I'd love to do that. I, I did the New Jersey Comic Con. No, sorry, New Jersey Walker Stalker okay. event. But that's what I'm about to get to. Is the fact that I did the Comic Con, I had a blast, and the people that went there, obviously great. And I love all the cosplay stuff because you get some absolutely mental costumes, like a uh, Warhammer type stuff and things. Yeah. But then. I did a Walker Stalker event, which is you know solely based on The Walking Dead and a few odds and strands of horror as well. That is the busiest show yeah. I have ever seen. And I took four big boxes of books with me and I sold out in two days. And that is unheard of at a, a convention. So yeah, don't tell me that horror is underrated or the, uh, well, you know, by the general public, yeah, uh, or it's not appreciated because, like I said, that was the biggest event I've ever seen. I think it's the higher-up executives that want to keep horror in this like exclusive, non-mainstream culture, and they don't want to let go of that and admit that horror is one of the most popular genres out there right now. Yeah, I mean, James Wan certainly did his bit to, you know, help bring horror back with, oh, yeah. you know, all of his films. I like some of his films and some of them are just a massive misfire for me. But then he went and did a film for himself, uh, Malignant. I saw uh, it. Did you see it? I did, unfortunately. I, I, I couldn't stand it. You didn't like it. It was different from his other stuff. Yeah, I, I, some of the shots I absolutely loved, like when she's walking around the top part of the house and we're like in the attic kind of following. Um, I, th that's, I think you went a little too much on the CGI. Uh, it, the Act 3, you know, when the reveal and we see what's going on, uh, it was the CGI was very noticeable, I guess, for lack of a better term. It was very... For me, I think the companies behind him just turned around and went, you know what, you've proven yourself. Go make a film for yourself. And he yeah, was like, right. it's Christmas. I'm going to go crazy. And he did. Because I, I just feel if they had made Malignant like half an hour shorter, mm -hmm. because when the Act 3 happened, I was like, okay, yes, nice. And then it carried on. I was like, all right, I, I get it. I'm bored now. You know? And I just think if they had trimmed it a bit, it would have been more impactful. But clearly, clearly he was having fun. It was. He was having fun. And you're right. James Wan has proved himself. He's great at what he does, you know, in the paranormal subgenre. And you could tell when you're watching a big budget horror film. I mean, there was no expense spared 
with the computer graphics on this thing when they're when she is shifting in and out of that dream state and the rooms yep. melting away i thought that was fantastic my only issue was in the end when we got the big reveal and we got to see you know what it actually looks like it didn't really somewhere there there was a little bit of a misfire i think it's kind of it was built up better when we first saw it in the shadows in act one exactly that was mysterious yeah and i was like i like the twist you know i like the 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 reveal but then i was like now i've seen it um if they ended it there i would have been happy but because it carried on i was just like now you lost me again (laughs) gotcha gotcha now moving forward like you, you know you you write direct uh would you feel comfortable giving your writing to another director to direct oh definitely yeah and do you feel comfortable as a director taking another writer's work 100 percent. yep okay i uh, actually wrote um a nightmare on elm street up all night and we filmed it in 2020 just before lockdown happened in the uk yeah. so i was I was over in Seattle in February filming it because the director that I gave it to, he said, I'm only going to direct it if you're going to act in it. And I thought, well, okay, because basically the character was based on me anyway. The guy's a loser. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, I'll I'll fly in, I'll act in it, and I'll I'll go home. And I was lucky because we hired um, Mick Strawn. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's done Nightmare on Elm Street, Eid, Sid and Nancy. And watching because he actually directed some of that for us and watching him direct and watching him do the production design i learned so much from that guy you know he's, he's a goddamn genius and so i would have no issues my only thing that i would like is if someone was directing my work i would like the ability to pay for myself to go and have a day just to watch him film so well, as the writer of the work i would assume that would be a given normally but you don't want to presume exactly you know? now uh, m- moving, sorry, mo- sorry uh moving forward which uh projects you have a lot of stuff in pre-production uh and so on which one should we really keep an eye out and like you're most proud of and well it's in pre-production so it actually hasn't been done yet but which one are you most excited about I'm, I'm excited about them all for different reasons, and I'll, I'll give you a quick reasons why. The call that we're making um, at the moment is a slasher film, but it has nods to David Lynch and Oliver Stone with the way they tell their stories. Okay. Um, cool. With the flashes and things that we're throwing in there. And it's, it's going to be quite an uncomfortable film for people to watch. We're doing Chained in... January, which I've actually got in trouble for already because people say that I side with rapists and agree with rapists because I'm making this film. And I'm like, no, you are missing the entire point of this. But I'm excited about that because we're using different mediums in it again. You know, we we played around with stage shows in in, uh, They Came. So we're doing more of the stage show stuff where the actors in an uncomfortable situation, one of them's like, do you think what it could have been like between us? We cut to a stage show with audience cheering them and, you know, it's just really fucked up. Yeah. Uh, and then Love Life, which we were supposed to film two years ago, but 
COVID. Um, Love Life I'm excited about because it's closer to a film called Leaving Las Vegas. I don't know if you've seen it with Nick Cage. I have, yeah. One of my favorite drama films. So I wanted I, I wanted to do that, but cross it with Psycho. Um, so you know, there's there's just different reasons why I'm excited for them all. Awesome, awesome. Have you any, uh, ever done any shooting uh, here in the United States? Uh, not with me directing, only acting. Okay. Uh, and that was Nightmare on Elm Street. What do you think about? You know, what's the biggest difference working in the UK as opposed to the United States uh, acting or whatnot? I mean, is it the same beast or completely um, different? Acting wise was the same for me. I just flew in, did my lines and fucked off home. Um, <laughs> directing wise, from what I see, it's just it seems more people in America are keen to get involved with films. So, you know, we found a bar location really easily who, you know, she shut the bar down for us. Uh, Mick went in and changed bits around to make it look presentable for camera. Here in England, you know, you can be like, hey, can I film? No. <laughs> well, I'll pay you. No. And it just seems a lot harder. You know, Americans seem a lot more passionate about being involved. Awesome. Awesome. Matt, I want to thank you so much. This has been a fascinating hour. And uh, <laughs> you're just a very creative uh, guy. And I love, I love that you like to push boundaries. And, and I love the fact that you enjoyed bits of Next Door. I did. I did. I did. And I like watching filmmakers who take risks, push boundaries, not to please the audience, but for themselves to see, you know, what they're capable of. And I see a lot of that in you. And I definitely respect and appreciate that. And I thank you for giving it to us. Well, thank you. I mean, hopefully it will, it will work out and people will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I just, just feel as filmmakers... You know, if you're a filmmaker yourself, uh, we need to think outside the box and look at different ways of doing things. We, exactly. we can't just copy every film we go and watch. Exactly. You know, I borrow bits from directors that I like, but I'm trying to morph my own thing. So, yeah, I think it's important for everyone to try and find yeah. ideas and stick with it. It's so easy to see something and then try to copy it, maybe make a little changes, but that's the easy way out creating something your own that's the hard part uh anyway thank you so much matt we did have technical issues on the live so i'm going to repost this interview uh recorded in a little bit sorry to all our live viewers who are not watching this live but we'll be watching this recorded i apologize Mm. uh thank you so much and is it your birthday tomorrow it is yeah happy birthday and enjoy uh the bond film Uh, anyway guys uh, stay safe and on behalf of Matt and myself stay walking bye bye thanks very much